Hey there, it's Lisa from the Culinary Chronicles podcast. On this show, I will interview people from all walks of life about their food experiences and culinary journeys. Food, feeding my loved ones, sharing meals, and the conversations and love that fill the table are what this podcast is all about. My father was a butcher, my uncle a baker, and my grandmother's after-school snacks were always a delightful Sicilian treat. I've always celebrated with food and found gathering around a table the most amazing feeling in the world. Culinary Chronicles is my way of sharing this love of food with you. I hope this podcast fills your cup with entertaining tales about the love of food. Welcome. Welcome to the show, Mary Luz. I'm so happy to have you on here. It's been several years since we saw each other in real life, but I'm happy that we're here to connect today, chat about chocolate and food and adventures. So I just want to start off to say thank you. The listeners won't know this, but I mix up the time, so I'm a little bit panty because I've been running around, but I'm happy that you're here and very patient. And let's get started. So maybe first off, tell me a little bit about yourself, what you do, your passions, your work. You've got a lot going on and um, I'd love for everyone to know a little bit more about you. Sure. Well, uh, hi everyone. I'm Mariluz Mejia. I'm Colombian born, Canadian raised. I am a food and travel journalist. I work by day as uh, a content marketer on the Sophie's National Marketing Team. And um, my favorite sweet passion is chocolate. So I went and got myself certified to actually learn how to properly taste it and educate others about it. So um, we follow kind of like the same trajectory that a wine sommelier would with regards to how they structure their courses. So we have three levels. Um, with other adjunct courses you could take. I just completed level three that we did in Milan and Turin this past spring. That was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I have an 11-year-old little girl. I have a husband and it's a busy but happy life. Amazing. So tell me a little bit about like this certification. What kind of classes are there? Are you tasting chocolate? Are you researching? What's like, what's a day in like the classroom like? Is it in a classroom? Sure. We, levels one and two I did here in Toronto because Martin Christie came from the UK. And so what that was about was level one is a good just sort of like level set introductory. What What is this bean to bar thing? What does fine chocolate mean? What's the difference between commercial cacao, the couverture that a lot of uh, chocolatiers use in bulk? So they, they get these big blocks of tempered chocolate, melt them down and make them um, into bars with inclusions, they flavor it or they turn it into truffles, which we know as bonbons in the industry. What's the difference between that and what, say, a bean-to-bar maker does, which is a very, very complete job? They literally source beans and start from the bean. So they do all the work of of roasting the bean, meeting the farmer, first of all, very often helping or instructing the farmer on how to um, uh, ferment, dry the beans so that by the time they get to wherever they're going, say here in Canada, the beans have already developed some sort of flavor profile. So we learned about why that's important. And it's like making wine or cheese or coffee. It's, you know, that fermentation process is a really big key part of the flavor development. Um, And when you're dealing directly with the farmer, you can pay them an above average, above fair trade price so they're not getting a commodity price. And then you're getting a much better, pristine, cleaner product that isn't moldy, which is the big, dirty secret in chocolate, that it's moldy, that children pick the stuff 
uh, as slave laborers in West Africa still to 2022. And if you don't believe me, you can just Google that and see a about 100 articles written about that. Documentaries, if you like, they're on Netflix. Um, this is a thing. So uh, and, and so we, we talk about what the difference is between candy bars and fine chocolate bars, and they're a world apart. So from a bean to bar perspective, how like how can me as a consumer here in Toronto support that type of business or lean towards that type of product when I'm at the grocery store? Is that just found in fine food stores or is that kind of well, like that's a good green question. And or yeah, yeah. I, I would love to support that kind of thing, but I, I love green and blacks and like some of the individual chocolate makers. Sure. I have a package here somewhere I should show you. Um but yeah, how does how does that how does one know? So that that's an excellent question because commercial guys have copped on to the language that they use in the bean to bar language. So they've co-opted it. They've made it their own, even though they're not doing that. They say they're doing that, but they're not doing that. Let me be very, very, very clear. And there are many countries, including the or companies, including the one that you just mentioned, that have been out bought by like the big guys, Mondelez, right? So they're no longer doing what the in initial intent was of particular company. But if you would like to support being to bar, there are makers all over Canada. In Toronto, we have Soma, we have Choco Sol, uh, we have Sol Chocolate Roasters, we have Chachala Lee, we have Hummingbird out in Almont, Ontario. And then there are people um, that are also using being to bar couverture to make bonbons and truffles, like Dawn Chocolate out in Aurelia and Melis here in Toronto. And there are others. So I know Farm Boy carries Hummingbird, um, Whole Foods carries Cyrene, which is an excellent bean-to-bar company from um, BC, uh, as well as Contu and Hummingbird. And Contu is in Montreal. They do beautiful, I mean, award-winning, gorgeous bean-to-bar from uh, using Peruvian cacao. So you can definitely support them. By, by looking for, for something, you'll know because very often it says being to bar. Uh, it'll tell you about the farmer. It'll tell you what, what estate it came from. It'll tell you a story about that relationship. You're never going to find that on a, on a little packet of candy bars. And they're called candy bars because the number one ingredient is sugar. So they don't even by law have enough cacao to be called a chocolate bar. That would go against legal conventions and all sorts of regulatory affairs. They just aren't allowed to say that. Um, so you you get to choose with your wallet just as you would a good cup of coffee. Yes, you can get your, you know, um, mass-produced $1.50 cup, or you can go to a really amazing roaster, and we have tons of them all over Canada, and buy a beautiful cup that's been a pour-over, and you get to learn oh, this is honey, or this is fermented like this, or this, um, you know, bean tastes like citrus, honey, and, um, you know, red fruit. It's the same with cacao. I love that. And I love, I love Soma. Uh, they're here in the distillery district in Toronto. And they're excellent. They're, they're one of the best in the, it, internationally. They win awards. We have really, really, I mean, really good bean to bar makers in Canada. And it's, it's funny to me that that so many people, Canadians, still don't know. But yet, like, chocolate aficionados in Europe and in the U.S., they, they know our stuff. They're like, we know Selma, we know Kansu, we know Hummingbird, we know Cyrene, we know... And I'm like, it's amazing. 
I'm so happy. Yeah. I, I would love more Canadians to know what we have here and to support that because it's, you know, unless we vote with our wallets, like any other food product, and you've been hearing that message for decades now, this is not yeah. new, then we can't, they won't have enough of a ground base to support what they do. A hundred percent. I agree. And when we had the bakery, we were on a television show. This is an example of like people not understanding the flavor profiles, the, the strength of taste, the purity of chocolate. Yeah. We did a competition on a popular morning um, show, yeah. talk show and uh, they put our cupcake, which was like a chocolate cupcake with made with like, you know, 60% chocolate and like eggs and butter and real ingredients. And then yeah. they compared us to a uh, store-bought cupcake, which probably can be on the shelves for like 60 days at room temperature. And and the, the judge picked the store-bought one versus ours because they were like, oh, this one is too like strong. And I was like, oh my God. But that's what consumers are used to the you know 99 cent chocolate cupcake versus exactly. the real the real like flavorful and coffee like people don't some people don't like independent coffee shops because the bean is so flavorful and strong and they like i'm not going to mention any chains names but they like something yeah, yeah, that yeah. has cream and sugar and you don't taste coffee so it's not it's not well that's comparable. you know that's an excellent point lisa because um, what the, what the candy bar makers get you to do is to crunch, munch and get it, get it down your gullet ASAP. Right. So that's why they add layers of like wafer, beast rice, uh, yeah. toffee, um, caramel, any other, just chew it, get it down the gullet. Why? Because they don't actually want you to taste their cow, like really, really taste it. So, you know, there's, there's a saying that we say, which is, you know, Basically, let it melt, suck, don't munch. Like, you have to let the chocolate melt. And that's because a really good chocolate takes you on a journey. So it might start out really bright, like tasting of raspberries, and then move over to citrus, and then eventually get over to, like, wildflower honey or brandy or wine or whatever. And that journey happens as the chocolate melts in your mouth and so it slowly, you know, permeates your palate. Now, what I do in some of my tasting is I, I, I walk people through that and then I, I buy a conventional bar that everybody tells me they love. Again, not going to mention any names, but then when they try that, they're like, why does this just taste like icing sugar? And I'm like, ta-da, because you didn't crunch munch and get it down the gullet. You actually took the time to taste what that is. And the only way that they can cover up the flavor of over-roasted cacao that's moldy, that's had a ton of like little bugs walking all over it, that hasn't been fermented properly, that maybe is infested with cacao moss, is to over-roast it so that you and I, the consumers, don't get sick. And then you're able to, you know, not taste that by covering it with sugar and other flavors like the biscuit and the caramel and the, and the toffee and the whatever else, right? So there literally is two buck chuck kind of type thing or a really great bottle of wine that you picked up at a winery in Tuscany and you know who that winemaker is. It's like that much of a difference. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, how do we go about promoting bean to bar chocolate in terms of like going to the store? I mean, I don't buy the, the Cadbury type candy bars, like you say, and I love the the bars of chocolate and I look at the ingredients and if it's like sugar number one but 
how is, does it just say bean to bar? Is there like a certification or I know some are like rainforest alive. Is there a certain thing that helps consumers? Very, very often um, you'll see very, very many of bean to bar makers enter the international chocolate awards or the Academy of chocolate awards. You'll see those awards on there. Some in the U S they enter the good food awards. You'll start seeing those um, very often. It says bean to bar, or it says fine chocolate or craft chocolate. But again, then be careful with those terms because the big guys have seen this and they're like, well, we want that market. We want those. We want to yeah, tweak our, tweak our marketing to be the same. So people are confused. And there, there was an article that was just released about, they're calling it like the second wave of, of chocolate and stuff. And I'm like, you like, they're making it sound like, oh, we've just invented this thing. I'm like, no, this is what bean to bars of makers have been doing for decades, like our very own Soma here started back in 2003, if I have my dates correctly. And, yeah. you know, it really started in the U.S. in the early 2000s when, you know, people there were like, OK, now let's do something a little better. Let's let the cacao express itself. So, you, yeah. And, and you can ask. You can also ask. But there are bean to bar makers. You just have to Google them. They're all over the world. Almost every major city in the world has a bean to bar maker. So if you go to Iceland, you'll find Omnom um, in Reykjavik, and they do amazing, beautiful, delicious, award-winning bean-to-bar in what used to be a gas station, and they like completely converted it, cleaned it up, made it this really cool lab where these two guys decided, let's try doing this, and they started making chocolate for their friends, and their friends were like, okay, wait, this is really good. And there's fun stories like that everywhere, like there's Pump Street in, in, in the UK, uh, they're bakers. So they kind of like saw the symbiosis of like baking and slow ferments and this cacao world. So one of their yummiest bars is their sourdough. Um, so there's a bar with crumbs of sourdough and sea salt. And the other one has little tiny bits of flecks of eckle cakes. It's delicious. Oh, that sounds amazing. Are they the ones in Borough Market? I don't know if they're in Borough Market, but... Uh, like I have their bars over here. Because I've been just, there, I'm, yeah. I think they're in, in like, North in Yorkshire. Oh, okay. I think. I I don't remember exactly where they're from, but I mean, we've got great cow makers and how like bean to bar makers in Hawaii, India, you know, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Canada, the U.S. All over the U.S. Yeah. Everywhere in Europe. Really fun. So you can track one. Travel as a chocolate tourist. I love that. So we're going to add in the show notes some of these places that you're saying so people can buy them and like links awesome. to find them. Okay, cool. And yeah, so we'll we'll put that out for our listeners. And so tell me, what does a chocolate tasting like encompass? Like, is it an hour? Is it a 15 minute thing? Like if you were to host one, which I think we should host one at our studio. I would love we that. Have talk, we've talked about that. It's just been a busy, yeah. busy period around here. Maybe we'll do that around Valentine's Day. What? What would someone who's attending the chocolate tasting class expect to experience? So I would start by by asking you, what would your clientele like? So some folks like a half hour, but I find most people ask so many questions that we end up going at least an hour or beyond. So it depends on how interactive your group wants to be. Um, I find that pe the public, the general public, if they've bought tickets, they want to know. So I get asked questions about fermentation, drying, what is that, uh, conching, refining, winnowing. They want to know. And we start by going from the darkest to the lightest. 
So the least amount of sugar to the most. And I like to curate using Canadian bean to bar. I have done some with, you know, other countries. Um, the cacaos obviously will be from other countries. So I take you through a sort of like a taste journey through your palate of various cacao growing regions that could be, um, you know, the highlands of the Dominican Peru, uh, a women's collective in Haiti that grows cacao, Colombia, uh, up in Tumaco, where they do a really beautiful cacao that tastes like dulce leche, but doesn't have dulce leche added. Um, really great cacao from Brazil. It could be from India, Madagascar, Tanzania. Those are really fruity, forward flavors. Peruvian cacao is amazing, and that can be from you know, the Andes down to the Amazon basin. So, you know, anywhere 23 degrees north and south, that's where we're looking at. And I, I ask a lot of questions to the, to the people too. What, what is your favorite chocolate? And the answers are always surprising because some people actually do know what fine chocolate is and other people will tell you it's a bar, a candy bar, and there's no wrong answer. So it's not about making them feel bad. It's about kind of understanding where they are at and their journey and what they have trained their palates to like. Um, and no shade because my husband's still a fan of fruit and nuts. So, you know, <laughs> and I'm and like, oh, and, and he's heard my spiel many times. So it's, it's also it's, awareness. Like people just aren't aware of this type yeah, of exactly. thing. Like it's not, exactly. especially if you grow up in like, like a regular middle-class family, you're not like exposed to whole foods or not exposed to like places like precisely. Soma or totally yeah, you're, it's totally not part fair. of your shopping basket. You know, my, my, my brother-in-law was a CEO. He's got, he's got, he's got bank, you know, but he's not interested in spending more than three or $4 on a bar, you know, and that's because that's the way he, he has, he doesn't see it as something that you need to spend more money on. He's coming around slowly though, because I've, I've talked to him about why I've talked to him about how much better it is for the people growing the cacao, how you can actually you know, eat that in good conscience because little kids didn't pick the beans. No grown men died trying to climb a cacao tree that hasn't been pruned and fall and break their necks. Because all of this happens in the industry. You're not eating moldy cacao. He thought that was interesting. That little like creatures of, of every stripe have walked all over and maybe even flown over and cooked on. Like that, that to him is also interesting. And the fact that you're paying these growers a better wage means that their kids can go to school, they're, they're, they can get health care if they need it. It's just a more sustainable model. So you're actually doing better than worse. And so there's also the luxury component, like you've mentioned. These things actually taste better, that you're not getting a commodity thing that's been slapped together and packaged in a plastic wrapper and just thrown on a grocery store shelf. You're getting something that somebody, an artisan, really took the time to learn to make and to create. And it's hard work. It's alchemy. It's all chemistry. Because, you know, if I overrose to this particular type of bean, gone are the citrusy, fruity, floral notes. And we move into like dark, dark, brownie coffee. So you really got to know how to work with these beans or figure out how to get the flavors that you want out of them. So, yeah, I mean, there is that level of, of learning. We taste a lot. Of course, when I'm talking about chocolate, it's, it's no good just to preach at you. Like, we're going to taste together. You sniff, you snack, you hear, you look. You learn all about why that matters. And we have a lot of fun. I mean, it's edutainment in my humble estimation because 
you know, it isn't to get on a soapbox and say, you've been doing it all wrong, people. It's really about, you know, look at this whole world of deliciousness that awaits your discovery. And I get it. If you don't want to spend $22 on a, you know, porcelana bar from Venezuela because it's one of the rarest cacao ever, you know, not everyone wants to spend 60 bucks on a bottle of wine. Totally fair. Yeah. But you can get a beautiful bar for four ninety nine. I think that's the last. They're they're smaller, but you can get beautiful hummingbird bars at Farm Boy and taste it and see what the difference is. And really, and to taste it, you have to let it melt in your mouth. You have to put it on top of your tongue, push it up to the roof of your mouth, and let that flavor envelop your tongue. And it is a game changer. I'm going to buy one today. I love it. <laughs> I feel like we need to meet up at Soma next just for a nice, beautiful hot chocolate, like real hot chocolate. And like, yeah, that would Let's be great. And like a real hug and all that stuff. Okay, cool. That sounds good. Um, that sounds like a plan. So judging international chocolate, I I love the the movie. It's called Dog Show, that crazy oh, dog. Yeah. I just feel like, I don't know why, I feel like chocolatiers might have a similar experience. But yeah, tell me, tell me about judging like is that super stressful and just it's actually very intense quiet work because oh you really need to focus you can't have the kid going can you help me with my math homework and you can't have your husband going okay dinner's done you just got to be somewhere quiet and you've got to focus because again these people have put so much time and energy into making these bars that you can't just be like get it in okay it's not like that it's you have to look at it. You have to smell it. You have to break off a piece. You have to let it melt. You have to really think about the flavors that you're tasting. And you categorize all of those on this really cool kind of, it, it looks like a multicolored chart. And some areas are spices and uh, fruits. Other areas are like the woody, herbal, grassy. Then over here, you're going to have like your dried fruit, wines, liquor, and, over here. and then you've got to start mapping out what it is that you're tasting. And then on top of that, you've got to go lower and talk about any flaws or any pluses so that the chocolate maker, when they get their, their feedback, because we do give them feedback, they can see, oh, okay, you know, nine out of 10 judges said this bar was too sweet, even though it's a 70% cacao dark chocolate bar. Okay, so maybe I'm using the wrong sugar or maybe I'm not. So it's all about learning. and. It's a lot more glamorous sounding than it is, like most things, because it's really about hunkering down. I have usually like soupy polenta without any butter, salt, or cream, uh, or just plain crackers and a lot of water, because you got to clear your palate between each bar so that I'm not tasting that bar back there that had those caramel notes. This one here has much more rum agricole and dark chocolate flavors. So I've got to focus on what this one is telling me. And so you've got to do that methodically one by one by one by one. And right now I have about 125 samples to get through. And I started yesterday with maybe 12. It wow. takes a while. It takes hours to do that and to do it well. Yeah. So is it just water? Because would that still be polenta? Like okay. I had said, just like there's no... Yeah, because the, the soupy polenta without cream, sugar, or cream, butter, milk, cheese, any, it just cleanses the palate better okay. than anything else. And because it's a neutral taste, it isn't sweet and it isn't 
it's a little bit more on the savory side that that helps the most. Right. And then how did you get into chocolate tasting and chocolate? Like, did you have like, you know, with the sommelier of the nose? Did you always have like a, a well, I've always loved chocolate. Uh, and then the more I started learning about it, the more I thought, wow, this world is is really interesting and is where coffee and wine was maybe like 10, 15 years ago. So when I worked as a TV producer, I interviewed and directed the episode on Maricel Pesilla, who is a James Beard award-winning chef. In fact, uh, her book is right up there. <laughs> and La Gran Cocina Latina, she's a Latin American food expert. She's a PhD in medieval Spanish history. And she's a cacao and chili pepper expert. And she said, you would be really good at organizing the Canadian leg of the International Chocolate Awards. So she put me in touch with her partner, Martin Christie. And there's a third partner, Monica Machini, who taught us in Italy. Um, and I started organizing them. So it's been like seven years now organizing the Canadian leg of the International Chocolate Awards. And that's how I kind of got into it. Because I'd hear Martin talking about like these these chocolate courses that that they offer, chocolate tasting certification. And I kept hearing about this. And finally, was, what is that? What do you guys do? Oh, well, we train the palate. We teach about cacao. We teach about what direct trade is and what fine chocolate is, how it's made, why it matters. And I was like, I like all of that. So I started. Sign me up. <laughs> yes, sign me up. I started like taking the courses. I also took the chocolate theory course at George Brown which was basically a, an in-depth iteration of levels one and part of level two. So that was a good refresher for me. And then, yeah, this this past year was three where you have to blind taste. First, you start by blind identifying four chocolates just by smell and you're blindfolded. And then you have to do the, the same four tasting. And you then there's uh, three chocolates that they'll give you. You have to determine which have regular like regular sugar and which has coconut blossom by taste we had a huge branding exercise and luckily i know a thing about that having worked in marketing for the last six years though so i like to say that we killed that part of the program we really did a fun good job on that and then we had a two and a half hour an exam Oof. and so we are you like chocolate factories in milan and turin which was amazing i got to meet pia rivera in milan who uh is the founder of Arantum. And uh, Guido Castagna of his own chocolates out in Turin. And he is, they both are super award-winning, but but Guido is like the king of the hazelnut, you know, because he's right there in Turin by Piedmont. So he does these Gian Duyotti type things that are like yeah. perfectly wrapped little foil hazelnut chocolate, melt-in-your-mouth velvety creations that have no weird hydrogenated oils and all sorts of other garbage like they're just really good venezuelan chow cacao and the pdi piedmont wow like hazelnuts they were it was like and he's such have, a superstar in the chocolate world i was like it's guido i was have like any samples we need to we need to try these i want to try these. where can you get those or only in italy i uh, yeah no you can have them shipped to you he'll and and he starts shipping again come september he doesn't ship in the summer because the product is so delicate. But yeah, you can order them in. And he has something called 55 Plus. So it is the ultimate Choco hazelnut spread. Not going to name any names. You know what I'm talking about. But his yes. is... Is real. It is. Oh my God. There's no soy lecithin. There's no hydrogenated fat. There's no 
crap test oil now yeah. there's no freaky oils there's real hazelnuts and i don't just mean three in a jar like it's a lot of hazelnut this is like the most indulgent sensual chocolate hazelnut spread you'll ever have in your life oh my gosh get some okay i'm done i'm, I'm gonna just go eat chocolate for lunch now <laughs> i'm gonna head to the grocery store and get some chocolate The Lactation Cookie Company was born from my challenges with breastfeeding, an experience had by so many new moms around the world. As a bakery owner, I set out to create a great tasting cookie that contained whole fruit ingredients and galactagogues like flax, brewer's yeast, and rolled oats, which all helped promote milk supply. Once the recipe was finalized, I knew I had to share this delicious and useful treat with as many breastfeeding moms as possible. What makes me most excited is that with every box sold, a donation will be made to La Leche League in Canada and the USA to support breastfeeding education in North America. Cookies come in delicious chocolate chip with regular gluten-free and plant-based options available. The Lactation Cookie Company products are available to purchase on Amazon or via our own website, thelactationcookiecompany.com. So tell me, what what do you find the differences when when training and here in Italy and What's like? What's the difference between the chocolate worlds? Are are we doing new world stuff? Are they doing old world stuff? Like, what's the? That's a good the, question. The actually, pulse. Because I think everybody's kind of mixing and matching a little bit. Like this is, you know, and I've spoken to David Kessler and Cynthia Long about this at Selma. They had a very interesting point of view because they're here in Toronto, which is like multicultural central, right? Like you've got people from Azerbaijan, Abu Dhabi. Colombia in the house right here, you know, like we've got everyone from everywhere. And what they have have done uh, or have had a lot of fun with is like sort of creating flavors that represent sometimes like these international touchstones that you get to mix and match. What I saw Guido doing was, you know, he took that very traditional recipe that was initially created in 1856 by Paul Caffarel. And he's he's updated it, but he hasn't gone hub wild. Like he's not throwing in condensed milk and and I don't know some other interesting odd ingredients in there. Like he's just refined it and played around. He's tinkered with the recipe in his estimation so that it's like the best representation of that traditional thing. You know, so he's he was a he's trained as a pastry chef. Like that was his thing. So he's very very like almost chemistry based it has to be exact so he's all about like how big is that microparticle you like know what? Uh, yeah like he's like this it's gonna affect your mouthfeel so oh, let's wow. get that right and then I... he he's quality obsessed so he's like okay he'll look through a pile of, of hazelnuts and he'll be like he'll just pick out the ones that no they don't quite look right yeah. to him and he does the same with the cacao like i mean this guy's on top of it so he's I find that sometimes more interested, at least when I was in Milan, in in kind of playing with the traditional recipes. Pia has a beautiful white chocolate, and I'm, I was never interested in white chocolate because to me it was just this overloaded, sugary blend. But happy to say that I've turned myself around because I've tasted really great white chocolates that actually have a lot of flavor and it isn't just sugar. Um, again, they have to be bean to bar. They have to be made with excellent cacao butter that's 
clean and and good quality, not rancid, not the stuff that the commercial industry uses. She makes one called Bianco Mangiare, which is based on like the uh, Italian version of the Blanc Mange dessert. And so she uses these Italian almonds and Amalfi lemons. And so you get this beautiful kind of creamy like my my husband grew up in south africa so he loves white chocolate he's like oh my god he goes why don't you buy five bars of this he loved it and even my sister who's never been interested in white chocolate i gave her a piece of that arantum bianco mangiare she was like yeah i'm like i'm in the i'm in the no white chocolate camp but i'm I'm curious to try that well have you ever tried a selma fruit bar they're made with white chocolate like they're raspberry no amazing because your mouth literally goes puckers with the, the like they use real raspberries i think from a farm in niagara uh they have one that's mango lassie that's gorgeous and one that's mango chili that's got that pop of chili oh, i love that but again they're using really excellent white you know like the white chocolate is is good cacao butter and you have to start with really good raw ingredients because you've got nowhere to hide if you're Sunday, not sunday morning merlus let's let's meet at the sauna <laughs> I'm like, my mouse is like, oh my God, I need some chocolate now. (laughs) I love it. And I'm never going to record a podcast before lunch again, because this is like a food podcast before lunch. (laughs) I know, no, you're like, okay, I'm just going to gorge on sugar now. I love it. So growing up as a Colombiana, is is that fair to say? Did you grow up in Toronto? Tell us, like, was food like a big thing in your life? Obviously, like being Latina. I grew up, uh, we started in Hamilton. Surrey, actually Cambridge is where we first landed when, when we got here, 1973, and quickly moved to Hamilton. So I, I grew up in, in the mountain, working class Hamilton, St. Thomas More High School represent. And then we moved over to Oakville because my mom wanted to be close to work. She worked at Ford. She was one of the first women on the line making cars, making minivans. She's so smart because I remember when I was 12, she took me on a family tour of the plant. And everything was like that industrial gray blue with those fluorescent lights. Everybody looked like they were anemic. And <laughs> looking around going, oh, man, this is where you spend all day, every day. Mom's like, yeah, 12, 14 hours a day. And then she had the glue guns because her job was to put the uh, windshields on the car. And she's like, come on, press it. And so here's me at 12 pressing this one, trying to get and this little dribble of glue comes out. And she takes it and it's six feet. She goes, so six hours or sorry, 12 hours a day doing this and then hoisting windshields up on all of these bars on the line. She goes, do you think you'd like that job? I'm like, no. She goes, okay, so stay in school. She didn't need to oh say my God. What a life lesson. Yeah. I was like, okay, that's it. That's done. Like, I didn't even ever want to work there during my summers. I was just so put off. And it's a good job. Like she was an immigrant. She didn't have a lot of, you know, translatable skills. So it paid her well. And I'm infinitely grateful that they hired her because she still has like a good little pension and everything she's taken yeah. care of. But whoa, she sacrificed a lot. So yeah, my dad did a lot of the cooking and that was probably new to him because he's a Latin, he was a Latin American man, you know, didn't grow up in the kitchen because very few of them do. And so, stereotypically, it was probably like, oh, gosh, like her husband's cooking. Oh, you know. Yeah, it was, it was funny. They had to they had to sort of divide and conquer. And uh, poor guy, he made me like fried potato chips basically like every day for a month when I was in like grade two. 
And one day I just turned to my teacher. I'm like, oh, I don't really feel well. And I proceeded to uh, empty the contents of my stomach all over the classroom. She sends me to the nurse's office. The nurse sends me home. I walk through the door of our apartment in Hamilton and dad's frying up the next batch. <laughs> and I was like, oh, dad, I can't eat that anymore. The, the nurse said that I have to eat a more nutritious rounded diet. <laughs> but Ed and he, my dad was, he was like, what's going on here? And my mom was like, how do you think of the grand Hansen? Give a little girl fried potatoes every day for lunch for a month. <laughs> I mean, I look back on it now and it's funny because my poor dad didn't know. Like, he thought he was doing me an, a solid. Here's the thing you like. And for you. And here's my mom going. And I'm going to keep making it because it's easy and I know you like it. And I had to stop because my stomach, like, revolted. It was like, Aww. we're not doing that anymore. So I, I basically ended up trying to teach myself how to cook when I was around seven because I saw that, you know, they were working double shifts or especially when I was little. And sometimes I'd go to school and there was no lunch. I told my mother this recently, and she's like, that never happened. How dare you? And I was like, I lived it. I remember it. I, I know it. Sorry, yeah. it happened. And she was like, mortified. Because I have an 11-year-old older brother and a 9-year-old sister. But they were like, you know, in high school, they weren't making yeah. sure the little one got lunch. But sometimes I'm sure they did. But the day that my stomach was like, Ugh. The teacher says, does anyone have an apple for her? I oh. ate core, the seeds, everything. And after that, I was like, you know what? No, this really sucks. I'm going to learn how to make scrambled eggs, French toast, pancakes. Took out the Betty Crocker boy and girl's cook and taught oh. myself because I was like, we're not doing this again. So for me, food has always been very important because it's the difference between being healthy or not healthy, being hungry being full or sated, sharing happy moments or feeling isolated. Like food is all those things and more. It's also political. It's also environmental. It's also it's all the things. But as a little girl, I just remember thinking like, there's got to be another way. Like I am not, I am not going to be anyone's charity case. Screw this. We'll learn how to do this. Right. But, yeah. So I started and I started with like the simple things. And moved on to cookies and cakes. And then it was like savory, savory, savory food. That's amazing. I got goosebumps there. That was, yeah. You had to. And like, I love the thing about political and, and social and yeah. It's, it's all that and more. My goodness. Now it's like, it's so tightly woven with like people's identity and culture and pride. You know, where you're from, what that land produces, how you prepare it. What that means to you, we celebrate around it. We mourn around it. Like it's, it's so many things because there's nothing else that can sustain us physically quite the same. Yeah. Other than water, of course, which is a non-starter. Without water, we're, we're going nowhere. <laughs> oh my gosh. You're quite right. I was just going to ask like kind of where people can find more information about being a chocolatier and kind of like, you know, your favorite meal or chocolate-based menu? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, um, there's nothing like a Mediterranean meal. I, I, my husband's a Bosnian Croat. And when we're in Croatia, I find myself in my happy place, other than being in Latin America. 
I love Mexico, for example, Cartagena. These cities all make me happy. But that Mediterranean dry, sunny heat, the people are so lovely. We've got seafood, fresh veg, olive oil, some wine, figs, those kind of like blue ocean that's crystalline. But I, I, I feel good there. My body feels good. My head feels good. It's like I can just go. just sit back and go wow what is this beautiful place look at that and see the cultures that have walked past in the food and in the architecture and in the people's faces you know i love being there and i'd love to spend more time there and they have been to bar makers there now so i have even more of a recent there you go there you go you gotta get on those house websites and find yourself a six month six month that's uh, it Right. He would move there full time if he could, but we have an 11 year old. So, but that, that to me is, is my, is my happy spot. And yeah, I mean, what's interesting is like places like Oaxaca, they use chocolate in moles, not all moles because a mole verde or a a mole mancha manteles, which is like the really bright red one. Those do not have chocolate, but some of them, there's just a little bit there. And it's interesting because I feel like it's, it's kind of like to honor the place. You know, it's that terroir moment again because they're using corn, they're using the cacao, they're using the nuts that grow in the area and all these really fabulous spices. And it's it's like this this dish that's as complex or even more so than anything that you would find in like France. Amole is a very complex sauce and I've tried to make it. It's like two, three, four, five hours worth of work. Oh my gosh. You have I didn't to- know that. And toast will, yeah. everything, get the molcajete out and start like mixing it. Then you have to fry it and it's you got to do all the things and babying it. And, there's, and some of them have that little bit of chocolate. And I find that's a really beautiful expression of the place. I think, you know, Mexico has such a beautiful and rich culinary history. And we're just starting to figure that out in Canada. Like it's so much more than a taco or a flauta. And don't even get me started about fajitos and fajitos and burritos and stuff. <laughs> Very different northern Mexico Tex-Mex thing. They, they have some food traditions that are, you know, millennia old. Like, they're just beautiful. So do you think you found your home with chocolate? Are you like, this is it. This is my thing now. I love this world and this life and this history and this, like, learning. Like, because you can learn yeah, forever about you know chocolate. What? I, I am an eternal student. It's it's really cool because I, there's a, still a lot more to learn about chocolate. <laughs> a lot. I've only begun to scratch the surface and I have been studying this for years. But there are people who, who dive deep into like the hybridization of cacao and the, the genome project of it. And the, it's a big thing because so much of the cacao has had to be hybridized and, and genetically put together so that it survives after so many you know, interesting infestations like witch's broom and all sorts of things that kill cacao. So there's a lot to learn. But yeah, a cacao is a, is, a, is a friendly community. And the thing is, I like to write about it, too. So um, I just wrote an article about the, the trip to Italy for Nouveau magazine. And uh, it's, it's a way to share that passion. And then I do tastings. I've done private ones. I've done corporate ones for like CEOs and big wigs and lawyers and it's just a fun way to share a passion and to say like there is more to this than just putting a yummy piece of a treat in your mouth 
here's what it is. And right. here's food for thought for you to take away with you. Love that. And so, and it's funny because, you know, we just had Halloween. Uh, I give out chips. I refuse to give out bad chips. I'm like, no. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> Rolls his eyes at me. I'm like, the kids are getting some chips. Okay. They're getting my, chips. My neighbor gave out quarters. So, you know. I'm quarters? With you there. Okay. Well, my daughter got um, seaweed, a seaweed pack. There you go. Okay. Only one that I know that's like awesome. She loves them. It's the healthiest yeah. date ever. We got back from Italy the day before and we didn't, we could not find candy or pumpkin in like four or five grocery stores in our neighborhood. So we gave out, we had some little snacks from like lunchbox snacks. So we gave out those and, you know. Kids like those too. Something <laughs> yummy and snacky. Yeah. Yeah. I also, also did a lot of, we do a chocolate, um, we did and still do a chocolate class at the school. And I used to teach it many years back, but it was very rudimentary. And, and But I found it fascinating because I did a lot of research. And I remember some of the factoids that I would say in class. And one was that it was used as a currency. And it yes. was like five beans for a slave, you know, 10 for a prostitute. Like it was it such was a fast... gold. And I think the history of chocolate is just like, we can go on probably for hours about this subject. And I, I'm fascinated yeah, by it's, this. It was too, used so. in religious ceremonies. To, and then the conquistadors, the Spanish saw that really only like the head of like you know Aztec tribes or they were the ones that were using it for religious ceremonies and it, it was it had it always had a lot of cachet and then when it eventually got to Europe it started disseminating in the royal courts because it was like offered to the Spanish king and queen who initially thought that this was so terrible that it was not even worth feeding to pigs quote-unquote but of course, back then, you would have cacao dissolved in water and it was bitter. That's yeah. why you have to know how to like roast it and how to refine yeah. it and how much sugar to add, what kind of sugar to add so that you, you get the best flavors out of this raw product. And that wasn't being done back then in the 1700s. So it was actually the friars, monks and nuns that started playing with it in the royal kitchens and in the convents. Yeah. They were like, well, you know, but if we actually add wildflower honey, we get this thing. And then eventually it was sugar because honey was, sugar wasn't always what it is today. Right. They started figuring out how to get this thing called sugar cane, press the juice and make some sugar out of it later. And then it became, you know, the ultimate thing that if you were in the royal court of Spain, France, England, anywhere, you were treated to a cup of hot chocolate because they weren't really enjoyed as like truffles bars or just yet you were someone special and then of course the middle class the merchant middle class were like well we want a piece of that and then eventually that disseminated down to more of the working class people and in the late 1800s fries of the uk of england developed their first industrial what we know as chocolate bar that was like shelf stable okay Love so it. yeah it's 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 got a really interesting long history. It was worth more than gold to some some cultures, and oh, has always had kind of pride of place in in anything from like a royal ceremony, like a, a religious ceremony, to a royal gathering. They yeah. invented pots and cups just for this occasion, and there are collectors around the world that have these beautiful, fine, fine, fine bone china, beautiful like spouted pots and these cool little cups for chocolate wow yeah that that were all from the royal courts of royal families across europe i love that 
I love that. I wanted to to just say thank you. Thank you for your your knowledge. And I feel like full. I feel like so full of I love chocolate. I love good chocolate. I love going to places like Soma. You just reminded me I haven't been there in like a year or pre-pandemic. But yeah, thank you for sharing all this knowledge. And we'll put show notes of where people can become certified and learn more. And we definitely will host a a workshop in the new year so we can tell everyone about that. that. And then we can maybe have like another chat about, you know, more chocolate fun. And uh, yeah, thank you. How many chocolate bars do you have in your house right now? Now? Can we say uh, it in kilos or is it by bar? I I have around 40 bars, some of which I haven't tucked into yet because I, I get gifted these. And then you'll see me posting on Instagram about the chocolate and I'll post tasting notes. And sometimes, uh, you know, I'll even, I'll I'll do shout outs to the, cho- the, the chocolate makers. So yeah, there's about 40. And then of course, I've got the 125 samples. I've got a lot of samples of chocolate. Look, you better get tasting, lady. okay have a wonderful afternoon and we'll have a a hot chocolate catch-up at soma soon that would be awesome thank you so much for having me on your podcast lisa and i wish you nothing but the best with your lactation cookie business which i think is so cool and with all of all of your endeavors you're you're creative and an entrepreneurial and i'm sure you'll be a role model on inspiration to your own children Oh, thank you. Well, my son, I was setting up for my podcast this morning and then he was setting up on the sofa with a wooden spoon for a microphone and a chair. That made my heart smile. So I think I'm going to actually interview him for one of these podcasts because I think it'll be fun to interview him every year and see how he he progresses. And of course, that'd be great fun. He loves food. We did two weeks in Italy and he ate everywhere and everything and didn't like blink an eye. So yeah, it's hard not to be a kid and love Italy. It's Carbs, carbs, and carb. <laughs> pizza, pizza, pizza. Yeah, and gelato. And some so pasta. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks for your time, and I'll speak to you soon. All right, we'll talk to you later. Thanks again. Ciao. Have a good day. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of Culinary Chronicles Made with Love. Before you go, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app. For more information on the show, visit ladolching.com. And for more behind the scenes, follow me on Instagram at Lisa Sanguidolce.